Well, good morning and welcome to week number one of our brand new series called God of the Underdogs. Uh, this is a series that we're going to be in for the next six weeks or so. And my hope is that we'll all come to a realization that uh, on some level we're all underdogs and on some level we can trust God that he can use us in spite of who we are and what limitations that we may possess in life. Now let's talk just a minute about underdogs because most of us, given the opportunity to uh, cheer for a team when we don't really have a dog in the fight, so to speak, when there's two teams playing maybe on television and uh, we don't particularly uh, have any knowledge of either team, we typically tend to gravitate toward cheering for or pulling for the team that's not supposed to win. So if one team is ranked high and the other team is not ranked at all, we tend to pull for the team that's not ranked at all because we like to see an upset. We like to see an underdog victory. We like to see uh, teams that aren't supposed to win, win. And I think it's because we can relate personally, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Let me share with you one of my greatest underdog stories in my life. When I was a senior in high school, um, I was playing basketball at Stevens County High School, and we had a game at North Gwinnett High School. And in this game, we literally lost the game 100 to 34. Like 100 to 34, like 66-point deficit. We got beat by this team. Now, this team uh, had some great players, but they had this full-court press that, for whatever reason, we could not seem to break. And we literally crossed the half-court line towards our goal only a few times that game in order to shoot a few shots. But uh, we left that game feeling fully defeated. I mean, it was an embarrassment, to say the least. 100 to 34 is unbelievable. Uh, how badly we played in that game. And we went back and told our friends how badly we had gotten beat and word got back to them. And later in the season, they came to our place and we were going to play them again. They, at this time, I think they were ranked number six in the state. And as they were coming on that day, there was no one that expected us to win that game. Not one person. In fact, a lot of my friends were excited to see how badly we would lose. You know that, that moment where your friends are like, dude, you guys are going to get hammered tonight. This is going to be great. So everybody showed up for this game, not because it was supposed to be a good game or not because we were supposed to win or it was an important game, but because they literally wanted to see how good this other team was that beat us 100 to 34. And there was a moment in this game, uh, around about like after halftime in the middle of the third quarter, when we were actually in the game, like it was a close game, that people started, you could feel like this shift where people were like no longer observing us, get it hand, getting it handed to us. They were like, they might actually have a chance. And you could feel like people starting to pull for us. Like this team that got beat 134 could actually beat the same team later in the season. And uh, I'll never, never forget the excitement of that day as this uh, team that was not supposed to win at all beat the number six team in the state and people went crazy. You would have thought that it was a state championship. Um, but I can just remember thinking and knowing what I already knew that on any given day, on any given time, any given team can win because all it takes is an injury or a bad game or a set of circumstances uh, that can pull a shift in talent and make up for what is supposed to be. But the reason I think we like underdogs is because we can relate to them. Underdogs are not supposed to win. Underdogs have less talent, many would argue. Underdogs aren't as fast. Underdogs don't jump as high. Underdogs can't score as many points. Underdogs have a disadvantage, and rightfully so. Legitimately, they have excuses that would keep them from winning. 
every underdog can lose a game and say, well, we weren't supposed to win the game. Like, they were better than us. Every underdog can lose a game and, and can be like, well, we weren't supposed to win. Like, they were bigger than us. They were faster than us. You know, we have nothing to lose. And a lot of times that nothing to lose attitude causes people just to go for it. And sometimes they come out on the winning end of things. Now, I think that you and I alike, on some level, are an underdog. That there is some area in your life and there's some area in my life where we feel as though we aren't talented enough or we're not qualified enough or there's something that would hinder us from being successful that would make someone else a better choice to do something that we're doing. And because of that, sometimes we feel as though we live this life that's lacking of victory. And especially when it comes to thinking that God might want to use us to do something, we have far greater excuses for him not to use us. We've got pasts. We've got limitations in our skills and talents. Uh, we don't know as much as some people. And when we look back at the stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible is full of underdog stories where God chose an individual who would not have been the best choice in the moment by, by many of us, if not all of us. And God chooses people who wouldn't be the obvious choice to do great things and uses them in spite of their limitations. I think that's the beautiful thing about God and the way that he uses us is that he doesn't take people who are qualified and use them. He takes people who are willing and qualifies them. And it's a beautiful thing when God takes someone who isn't supposed to be successful and honestly has every excuse not to be, and he uses them to accomplish something great. So in this series, we're going to look at six individuals in Scripture who were underdogs, six individuals who had legitimate excuses as to why they should not be used of God, yet God used them in spite of that. And in the midst of their circumstances and their world, when they should not have been successful or accomplished something great, God used them for his glory to accomplish great things. Now, the first story that we're going to talk about is, is about a man named Jacob. And the story is found in the book of Genesis, which is the first book in your Bible. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. Genesis chapter number 25 is where we're going to start. Um, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. He gave his wife, Sarah, gave birth to Isaac. And Isaac, with Rebekah, gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is one of those twins. And Jacob has an excuse. And he has an excuse that many of us have in life that would hinder him or prohibit him from being used by God to accomplish something great. But in spite of that excuse... God was able to use him. And today, what I want to do is, is hopefully help us see that if we have an excuse that's similar to Jacob's excuse, that God can still use us in spite of that excuse. And that excuse doesn't have to limit us from accomplishing everything that God wants us to accomplish in life. You guys, you guys understand that underdogs uh, are not supposed to win, but we love underdogs because we are underdogs. In some level, you're not as good as the next person. In some level, you're not as talented as the next person. In some level, your resume isn't as impressive as the next person. And so when we have these situations that limit us from accomplishing greatness, we have to learn to understand that when the odds are against us, 
God is fighting for us. When the odds are against us, God is for us. So I want to start with Genesis chapter number 25. I'm going to read uh, 20, verses 24 through 26 to get us started. When the time came for her to give birth, this is Rebecca. Uh, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which literally means hairy one. Isn't that uh, a way that we should uh, make naming children easier today? They just come out and we notice something and we're like, yep, hairy baby, you're going to be Esau, hairy one. Um, And so that stuck with him his whole life. He was Esau, the hairy one. Esau grew up to be a hairy man. Um, He was uh, a man that was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. Uh, He was uh, a gamer. He went out and hunted for the family. Uh, He was the tough, rugged of the two, and uh, from birth, uh, they recognized that that he was Esau. Now, this is important to note before we move on that Esau was the firstborn. In this day and age, the firstborn had many rights that other children didn't have. They received blessing from the father as the the firstborn. Uh, They received greater inheritance. Uh, They had a birthright. Uh, There was a huge advantage to being the firstborn son um, in a family. So this is important. Esau was that firstborn son. Verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Grasping Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Uh, Jacob came out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel, basically fighting for an advantage in life. Jacob, in our language today, would be translated as meaning the deceiver, uh, the usurper, one who's trying to get an advantage over someone else, the heel grabber. Jacob was the one who from birth was labeled, was named a deceiver. Not something that you would be proud of, but you can imagine that every time that Jacob heard his name growing up, hey, Jacob, would you come and do this? Hey, Jacob, would you go and get that? He was being constantly reminded of this label that had been put on him, that he was a deceiver, that he was this heel grabber, that he was one that was constantly trying to get something from someone else and get an advantage over someone. And isn't it funny, you've, you've had labels that you've been placed under or placed on you in life. Isn't it funny sometimes how the labels that have been placed on us become a reality for us because we never seem to get out from under those labels. And we see this of Jacob. We see uh, a young boy grow up into a man with this label of deceiver over him, and he becomes a great deceiver in his family. It's a tragic, tragic story, but I think we can relate to it on some levels because we all have labels There are things that we've been labeled with that we carry with us day in and day out that we feel as though they identify us. I mean, think about the labels in your life. Uh, Maybe it's a label from a past mistake and you feel like you're damaged goods or, or you're just a failure. Maybe you've had a failed relationship or you've had failure in your finances, or you've had uh, some tragic event that's kept you from achieving something great, and and you tend to be known as that person, you feel like that person who has not accomplished very much, and you feel like this label defines you. You can't see past it. You can't get out from under it. This was Jacob. Jacob, uh, we read a little more into this story, and uh, he deceived his brother, His brother, I told you, was um, a hunter, and he was out in the fields hunting for the family. He had been gone for some time, and 
And Jacob, the, the Bible says, liked to stay among the tents. Uh, he liked to stay home. He, he didn't venture out. He wasn't this tough, rugged man. Um, in fact, he liked to cook. There's nothing wrong with cooking. But as he was cooking this stew, in from the fields came his brother Esau. And Esau was famished. I mean, he'd been out hunting. He, had, he was tired. He's hungry. And he's coming back, and he smells this stew that his brother Jacob had been cooking. And he comes and says, oh, that I would love to have some of that stew. Please give me some of that stew. I am famished. I've been out hunting, and I need something to eat. Now, any good brother would just say, absolutely. Here's some stew. Have some stew, right? But not the deceiver, not Jacob. Jacob says, I got stew for you, but in order for you to get stew, you're going to have to trade me your birthright. You're going to have to give up your position as the firstborn and allow me to have those rights and then I'll give you stew. Now, looking at it from the outside, we're like, that's not a good trade, right? Who would do that for a bowl of stew? Who would give up your birthright? And we don't really understand that language because uh, we don't live in such a way today. But still, this young man Esau comes in from the field and he is so famished that the birthright meant nothing to him if he thought he was going to die. And he says, fine, have my birthright, just give me some stew. And later realized, my brother has just deceived me. He's just taken my birthright. He's going to hold me to this. I've made a tragic mistake. I've made a huge mistake. We fast forward some time in the story, and their father is now an old man, and he's, he's coming close to the end of his life, and he's in bed, and he doesn't see well, and he's becoming ill, and he sends for his son Esau because he's the firstborn, and he always, uh, the father would extend a blessing onto the oldest son before they passed away. And it would be this patriarchal blessing that would kind of transfer, transfer the duties of the patriarch to the oldest son. And so he calls Esau in and he says, Hey, Esau, I want you to go out into the fields and I want you to, uh, to, to kill and prepare a meal and bring it to me and then I'm going to give you my blessing. And so Esau goes out into the field to do that. Well, Jacob and Esau's mother, Rebecca, hears of this plan and she's secretly gets together with Jacob and says, I've heard of a plan that your father is going to pass the blessing on and he's going to do it this afternoon and your brother's out hunting and he's going to bring back a meal that he's prepared and then your father's going to prepare a blessing for you. And I think that we can get this blessing for you. And so Jacob, along with his mother, deceives his brother Esau. He prepares a meal and since he's not hairy like his brother, he actually takes goat skin and covers uh, his hands and arms and his neck so that if his father touched him, he would literally think that this was Esau. I mean, the extent that he went to to get this blessing from his father in place of his brother Esau is almost unimaginable. And he goes in to his father and he takes this meal. And his father touches him and says, you don't sound like Esau, but you feel like Esau. And so he eats this meal with him and then he gives him the blessing that is intended for his firstborn son. And shortly after Jacob leaves, Esau comes in with the meal that he's prepared. And he says, Father, I've brought you your meal. And he's like, who are you? He said, well, I'm, I'm Esau. I'm here to get my blessing. And he said, well, I've just given Esau his blessing. And it was in that moment that Esau realized, I have been deceived yet again. Not only has he taken my birthright, but now he's taken my blessing. He got so angry, Rebecca got word that he was so angry that he was going to kill his brother 
Jacob and Rebecca, the mother, says, Jacob, you got to get out of town. Go to your uncle's house, Laban, and spend some time there. I'll send word when he's cooled down, and I'll send for you to come back, and then uh, things will have blown over, and, and he'll settled, have settled down, and, and your life won't be in danger. So he does that. Jacob leaves, and he goes and has some more drama getting a wife. There's some funny stories for Jacob there. But we're going to pick up the story now where Jacob and Esau are going to be reunited. They've been apart from some years, and Jacob has been fearful from his life. He thinks that Esau is still out to get him, and rightfully so. He's been carrying this label for his whole life as a deceiver. He's become a great deceiver, and now he's avoiding his brother because he fears for his life. We'll go to Genesis chapter 32. I'm going to start reading in verse number 4. Jacob instructed his servants, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. Listen to the tone of his voice. This deceiver who has stolen a birthright, who has stolen a blessing, is now sending his servants to his brother because they're going to be reunited. And he's saying, This is what I want you to tell him. Tell him your, your servant Jacob, O oh master. You see how he's still kind of trying to manipulate the situation so that it's not such a bad outcome. I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. Tell me you don't talk to your brother this way. But when you're fearful for your life, you do. And he sends his servants to, to give a message to his older brother. That, that his servant is sending ahead gifts. And you can almost see him trying to manipulate this situation and work his way back into good standing with his brother without losing what he's fearful of the most. We'll go down to verse number 9. And we see the story continues. It says, Jacob prayed, O God, my father, O God of my father, Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country, your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, listen to this, God, this is you saying this, let me remind you, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So God... You're the one that told me that through my grandfather Abraham that you're going to pass down and we're going to become as numerous as the sand on the sea, as the stars in the sky. And remember that you said you were going to prosper me. I need you to kind of help me because I'm in a tough situation here. You can see that his motive is to deceive, to kind of manipulate the situation. He's trying to get an upper hand, not only with his brother, but even with God. This is who he has become. This is his approach to life. This is all he knows. We jump down to verse number 13, and it says that he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. I mean, he is getting the best of the best together to send to his brother. Verse 16, he put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me 
and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. You get this? He's not, he's not out front leading the caravan. He's not saying, come on, guys, we're going to meet my brother Esau. He's saying, get lots of gifts together, and you go. You're going to be the first wave. Give him lots of gifts and tell him that his servant Jacob is coming to see his Lord Esau. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us, for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he'll receive me. You see the manipulation, the deceit that he's trying to incorporate into this reunion with his brother, who he's betrayed in the worst ways. He thinks if I can pacify him with gifts, if, if words uh, declaring that I'm his servant will settle him down, then maybe he'll spare my life. And you almost get this feeling that he's just kind of, he's kind of trying to wiggle his way back into good graces with his brother, not trying to own up to anything that he's done wrong, not trying to reconcile, not trying to apologize. He's simply trying to bribe his way back into his brother's life because he fears for his life. He has become what he was labeled as. He has become what he's labeled as. And in life, if we're not careful, we'll allow the labels that have been put on us to define who we are. That we'll have labels that will dictate our actions and our attitudes and our motives because we'll become what we accept as a label in our life. Verse number 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So he's clearing everything out to head back to see his brother. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, most scholars would agree that this man that he wrestled with was some... Uh, form of God, that this was, whether it was an angel or whether it was a man uh, that, that was representing God, that he was literally in this moment wrestling with God. And here's what we need to understand from Jacob, is that when we've been labeled in life and when our labels dictate who we become and they define us, and we try all we can to change those things, we try to send gifts ahead, we try to say the right words, we try to remind God of what he said to us. And we figure that there's nothing that we can do to change who we've become. Our only hope is to get alone with God and to wrestle with him. Because we realize that God is the only one who can truly change us and make us brand new. That he can change the very fiber of who we are and pull us out from under any type of label that has dictated and defined our life in the past. And so he was left alone with this with this angel, and he wrestled with God till daybreak. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
So Jacob is wrestling with this man. He's been wrestling all night. He's tired. This man says, let me go. It's daybreak. I've got to get out of here. And and Jacob says, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. And it was in that moment, that desperation, that wrestling with God, that something changed in Jacob's life. Not only physically was he touched by God in the hip so that he walked with a limp the rest of his days, but listen to what happens. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered, deceiver, one who grabs the hill, one who's always trying to manipulate the situations. That's me. I'm the deceiver. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. You're no longer a deceiver, but you're now one who struggles with God because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. No longer are you one that deceives, but you're now one who struggles with God. Like you're fighting with God to to figure out what's best for you. You'll now be known as the man who walks with the limp because he struggled with God as opposed to being known as the deceiver who stole a birthright and a blessing from his brother and tried to manipulate a reunion. The label that you once had is being removed, and I'm giving you a new label, a new reality. I'm making your life different, and I'm changing the situations about you. The only hope that we have when we're labeled, when our life lives up to the labels that we've accepted upon ourselves, is for God to change us. And sometimes we've got to get alone with him and we've got to wrestle with him and we've got to spend some time in prayer and we've got to, to get alone and get frustrated. And I know that, that most of us have this idea that when we talk to God, we've got to be super reverent and we've got to come with a soft, gentle voice and we've got to tell God exactly you know, what's on our mind and we've got to be polite and courteous. But there's just those moments in your life where you just get fed up of being fed up and you're sick and tired of your reality and you just say, God, I'm tired of the way things are. Something's got to change. You've got to do something in my life. I'm not letting go. I'm not stopping this season of prayer until you fix things, till you change things, till you make me new, till you make me a new creation. I'm tired of being who people say I am, and I want to be something different. Jacob left there, and he went and he met his brother, who he'd been told would be coming with a hundred men, and he was fearful for his life, and his brother embraced him and loved him. And they had a godly reunion and started a relationship together. Jacob went on to do some incredible things for God, but I got to thinking of the power of a label and how what defines us can motivate us in life. I want to share with you two labels that I've had on me in this life, two labels that have defined my life for seasons of my life, and two labels that I'm not proud of, and the first one uh, may be confusing to you as to why I'm not proud of it, but when I was in high school, and as I was ending high school and going into college, no one came out, they didn't write it on a hello, my name is, like it wasn't something that I wore around, but I began to be perceived, especially among people in my church, as just a perfect Christian. And I would come back from college and, and I would hear people preach sermons and they would say, you know, Bronson did this and he took this stand and he did this. And I would hear people begin to use my name as an example for people. And without even saying anything, without even like verbalizing, putting into words how I felt, I began to be driven by this label as a perfect Christian. I didn't want anybody to know of anything bad that I'd ever done. I wanted people to be convinced that I had everything together 
I wanted people to know that, that I always made the right decision. I always stood for God. I always did the right thing, that he was always priority in my life. And it caused me to kind of go into this mode of living for a title rather than living for God. I found myself asking questions like, well, what are people going to think about if I do this? And I was driven more by people's opinions of me than I was driven by a true relationship with Jesus during that time with me. I loved God. I loved Jesus. But if I'm being honest, that was one of the moments in my life that I'm least proud of because I became so prideful and judgmental towards people. And it was a moment years later after I had just gotten married that my wife made a statement to me that let me know that I was far from a perfect Christian, that I had become a proud, judgmental, hard-hearted person towards people who weren't perfect. And that was far from the heart of God for the people around me. That I didn't have God's heart towards the people that God wanted to reach. That I didn't have the love of God spilling out of my life because I was so concerned with putting up this facade of being the perfect Christian and having people look at me in a certain way. And that label caused me to live my life so that people would always think of me that way. I remember wrestling with God and saying, God, how have I gotten to this place? How have I become so proud in myself that I have become so distant from who you want me to be? And I remember wrestling with God, and I remember in that season, God changing me and giving me a different heart for him. And I began to see people differently, and I began to live my life differently. And some things that used to be really important to me because I didn't want people to think things about me became less important. And things that never were important but should have been important became more important to me. And I lived my life differently, and it was shortly after that season that I began to feel a heart to start a church. And it was just a radical transformation in my life. Life from someone who lived to live up to a label that had been placed on me to someone who was free to be who God wanted me to be. Amen. And so God called Lindsay and I to start a church here in Barrow County. And I remember the second label that I've wrestled under this label. I met with a pastor for lunch. It was a pastor I had met with several times before. It was a pastor I loved and respected deeply. I admired and looked up to who had accomplished some great things. I had been speaking with this pastor and asking this pastor to help support our new efforts. I was hoping they would give us resources. I was hoping that they would give us uh, relationship. I was hoping they would give us training. I was hoping they would come alongside of us and help us do what God was calling us to do. And this was the meeting where I was putting all the eggs out on the table, all the cards on the table, and I was asking bluntly, will you support us? Will you help us? Will you come alongside of us and help us do what God's called us to do? And I'll never forget, I'll never forget, I think about it far too often if I'm being honest, I'll never forget him looking me in the eyes and saying, Bronson, I admire you, you've got incredible courage, I love your heart. But I just want to be honest with you. I don't, I don't think you have what it takes to be successful in this. And I just I want to love you enough to tell you that if you'll let me, I'd love to help you find a different position at another church that will serve you and your family better. Oh, you're talking about a label. A label that says not good enough to do what you feel God's called you to do. I remember going home and wrestling. I remember getting with God and just saying, 
The truth is, God, he's right. He's right. I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I don't have the relational context in Barrow County to reach that many people. I don't, I don't have uh, the abilities and the talents. I don't have what it takes to do that. And maybe he's right, and maybe I should just listen to him and stop. And I just remember wrestling, and talking with my wife, and talking with people in my life that I love, and settling on the fact that not good enough isn't going to define my obedience to a God that's called me to something. And while it may be true, it will not define me. And I'm going to trust God and be obedient to Him in spite of my limitations. Am I an underdog? You better believe it. Is this church an underdog? Are there churches in this community that are much larger and have much more influence? Are we fighting uphill here? You better believe it. The good news is God loves to use underdogs. And when I think of myself in the light of being a perfect Christian now, I don't let it define me. My goal isn't for you to think I'm perfect. My goal isn't to impress you with the most godly life you've ever had. My goal is to hopefully love you with the most godly love you've ever been loved with. And to be transparent enough for you to know that you're not too far gone to be used of God because he can use someone like me. And when I think of not being good enough, I'm reminded that there were people in Scripture that weren't good enough. You look at Jesus' 12 disciples, and he didn't choose the best of the best here. If we're studying the 12 disciples, we're like, you know, Jesus, I, you know, if we're playing pickup ball, I'm probably leaving, <laughs> you know, some of these guys. He's not interested in the best, the most talented, the best looking. He's not looking for the most resources. He's not looking for the most impressive resume. He's looking for someone who's willing, and he fights for you when the odds are stacked against you. I wonder what your label is. I wonder how many of you came in this room today wearing this label that's defined you for a season of your life, maybe for years of your life. Maybe something happened in your childhood and you were always told that you wouldn't be good enough or you couldn't do such and such. And for all of your life, you've walked with your head down knowing, yeah, you're right, someone else will do what I've always wanted to do because I'm not good enough. Maybe you've been labeled by a failure in your life. Maybe you've had a failed relationship. Maybe you've had a failed business venture. Maybe you've had failure in your finances. And maybe that failure has become a label. And you think, all I am is something that I messed up with in my past. And I'll never get past it. And I'll never get out from under it. And that's always going to go before me. Maybe you've made some mistakes. And you feel like, all I am is damaged goods. I'm not good enough. There's other people who are better than me, who are more gifted than me, that God can use to do things. And I just want to tell you today that there is no label in your life that will limit you from experiencing God's very best for you if you're willing to get alone and wrestle with him. If you're willing to fight for his blessing on your life, if you're willing to come out from under being who you've been labeled as and allow God to define you instead of people to define you, instead of experiences to define you, instead of your past to define you. I believe that all of us have been created by God for a purpose. And I believe that God has a plan for each individual in this room. And tragically, I believe that there are many people who God has plans for who will never experience their plans because they've allowed labels in this world to limit them from experiencing God's best for them. And I want to tell you today, you are not defined by your past. 
You are not defined by any mistake that you've ever made, and you're not defined by your lack of ability or your lack of knowledge or your lack of business savvy. There is no limitation that will ever keep you from experiencing God except for a limitation to wrestle with Him and fight for His blessing on your life. You want to be used of God? You've got to allow those labels to be lifted from you and let God define who you are. And all it takes is getting along with Him and wrestling with Him.